Today we're um, uh, in Matthew chapter 22. We're carrying on in our, our ser- uh, series that we've been looking at the, the last week uh, of Jesus' life. And uh, we're thinking about four questions or questions today uh, in general. You will have noticed in the reading that Wendy read for us, there are four questions we're thinking about. Uh, I don't know how you feel about questions generally. Uh, When you're at school, it feels like we spend practically all of our time answering questions. And how well you answer questions determines what people think of you, the grades you get. And everything to do with that. You sit in exams and it's all about how well you can answer questions. But I want to suggest that actually asking questions is probably a better way of learning, a better way of growing, a really good skill uh, to have. Uh, Sometimes, though, we can ask questions in different ways. Even the words might remain the same, but... We could ask questions in different ways, can't we? What do you believe? What do you believe? Do you see how they're different? One is a genuine question. The other, although the same words, are there to ridicule. Uh, Maybe that we've experienced some of those kind of false questions before. Uh, Maybe when we've been talking to friends about Jesus or... They seem to have these questions, but actually the questions are there to distract rather than to actually engage. They're there to catch us out. Sometimes we see those kind of questions on TV as well, don't we? There's there's kind of those interviewers who are really, really good at trying to get politicians to get caught in a trap of saying the wrong thing. Well, they want a news story that comes out of their interview. And it feels a bit like a game of cat and mouse as to who's the cleverest. So what's the end result? The end result is that the person answering the question doesn't say anything. They avoid the questions as much as possible. But here's a question that I want to ask you. If you like, it's the fifth question. If you could ask Jesus one question yourself, what would you ask him? If you would ask, or if you could ask Jesus one question, what would you ask him and why? It's a rhetorical question, but I'll give you time to think about it. What would you ask Jesus and why? There's space on the back of your sermon sheet if you want to note it down on the service sheet. But you see, that's what Jesus' opponents had an opportunity to do during the last week of Jesus' life. They had an opportunity to ask him various questions. But what's going on in their hearts is perhaps the way that, or the the means that determines what their response is. Have a look at chapter 21, verse 46. This is our context. If you've got a, a Bible, I think it's on page 990 in the church Bibles. Chapter 21, verse 46, it says this, The Pharisees looked for a way to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. You see, Jesus' opponents wanted to arrest him, but he was too popular. 
And people thought he spoke too much sense. And so they wanted, well, to discredit him. They wanted to get him offside with the people. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at an overall picture, if you like, of these four questions. And then we'll look in a bit more detail at each one. Because we've got three successive questions that these people asked Jesus, designed to trap him into saying something wrong. They've racked their brains and they've come up with what they think are the best possible ones. They're just going to expose him and get people offside with him. But Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. So let's have a look at the, uh, the recurring themes, if you like, that crop through all of these questions. Uh, they're there on the screen. Um, we'll go through each one, but I just want you to see this. Firstly, their motives are not genuine. So the motives behind the questions are not genuine. And then they ask a question of Jesus, a question designed to trap or to test. Then Jesus answers that question and they're left silenced. So let's have a look at the first question in verses 15 to 22. It's just, we're, we're, again, this is just a very quick um, overview. Verse 15, the Pharisees went out, laid plans to trap him uh, in their words. That's what's going on in their hearts. Verse 17, they ask the question, don't they? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Verse 21, they get an answer. Give back to Caesar what Caesar's. Verse 22, they're amazed. So they left him and went away. You see how that follows that up on the screen. Second question, the the Sadducees, they come back. Verse 23, and they want to discredit Jesus. They want him to make him look silly. Verses 24 to 28 is their question about the resurrection and uh, and whose wife that uh, somebody is going to be during the resurrection because she's been married to seven people. Verses 29 to 32, Jesus gives an answer. And then verses 33 and 34, it says this, When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. You see, again, they're silenced at the end. The third question, verse 34, uh, he'd silenced the Sadducees. The Pharisees get together again. In verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him he has a question to test Jesus he then verse 35 asks the question what is the greatest commandment in the law verse 37 to 40 Jesus answers again people are quiet you see that's what's going on here in the end result verse 46 have a look it says this no one could say a word in reply from that day on No one dared ask him any more questions. At the risk of labouring this particular point, Jesus' opponents hated him. They wanted to catch him out. They plotted to discredit him. But in the end, they were the ones who were quiet. They were silenced. They were the ones who actually were humiliated. And and in terms of this big picture, I want to draw out a few things for us before we go into the specifics of each of these answers. The first is this. Jesus knows the heart behind the question. Jesus knows the heart behind the question. I was was chatting to Karen this week about um, 
so, something that w- was discussed in, um, in Fuse on Friday night, and, and it was just about asking questions. And sometimes people feel really silly if they ask questions. But Jesus knows the heart behind the question. If it's a genuine question, then ask away. Because that's how you'll learn. That's how you'll grow. Ask anyone. Because if you want to know the answer, then there are people who are here to help and they won't laugh. But on the other side, the opposite applies too. If your questions are there to keep Jesus at bay, and actually you're really not interested, but you just want to prove how clever you are, then be careful because Jesus knows what you're doing. He sees your heart. You may feel very clever, but deep down you know that you're using those questions to avoid him. And in the end, you'll be the one who's silent. Thirdly, though, if you're faced, if you're answering these tough questions, and I'm sure that this applies to many of us, I'm sure Elliot probably gets this a lot when he's out and talking to students about, about Jesus, you, you feel like you're on the receiving end of people. And it's, I bet this happens in school for Christians loads as well. You feel like you're on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, people trying to discredit you or Jesus. Be reassured because Jesus knows exactly what it feels like. He's been there before you. Jesus' wisdom is greater than any critic, and so you can have confidence in what God has already said. We know the world probably won't listen at times, but some will. Be confident God's wisdom is greater than any human plans. And the final thing to say, I think, is this. If God's wisdom is better than any human wisdom, then there are going to be things that we don't understand. Things in the Bible that we just can't put together. We'll see that actually with the first question that Jesus answers. Trust what Jesus says, because that he can reconcile the things that we can't. So there we go. If you like, you you can kind of, if you want to, you can switch off because you've got the big picture. But we've probably got about another 25 minutes. So, uh, so apologies uh, if you want to switch off. Um, but look, that's the main picture, picture from the passage. And if you go away with one thing, and it's, I really want to ask more questions of Jesus, then you go away with something really great. But I think there's a wonderful thing, because what Jesus does is, you know, I said earlier that some people, when they ask questions and politicians, they avoid the answer because they don't want to get trapped. What Jesus does is he gives an answer which actually takes people way beyond and teaches them new things. He doesn't avoid the question. He answers the question and teaches us a heck of a lot in the middle of it. So we're going to look through each of these and uh, pick up what they can teach us and what they can, uh, uh, can help us to understand about really who Jesus is and what it means to live for him. Uh, And Each of these questions could be a sermon in its own right. So thanks, Ben. Uh, Much appreciated. Um, But but we have to get to Easter before, like, July. So um, so this is why we're cracking on through it. So firstly, look at the first question. And and I've summarized it as this. God owns your life, so give it to him. It's in verses 15 uh, to 22. 
Uh, you can see the religious authorities, uh, uh, everyone's hostile to Jesus, it, it seems, who are in authority. So the Pharisees, in verse 15, have laid out plans to trap in his words, and they go along with the Herodians. Now, I don't know if you know much about the Pharisees and the Herodians. I didn't. But the Pharisees are like some religious leaders. The Herodians were, were, were kind of like the, the pragmatic, um, powerful people. Uh, they were people who were on side with the Romans, whereas the Pharisees hated the Romans. These people were enemies. They hated each other. But the one thing they had in common, they hated Jesus more. Okay, so they hated each other, but they could work together because they hated Jesus more. Because Jesus was a threat to their power. The Herodians were aligned with uh, King Herod. That's the grandson of Christmas Herod. The Pharisees were aligned with the religious elite. You can see why they disliked each other. The Herodians were the Roman kind of puppet powerful. The Pharisees hated the Romans because everything that stood for them uh, was about an oppressive power over them. They wanted religious freedom. They disliked each other, but they come together, don't they? And they come together with flattering words. Teacher, they say, verse 16, we know that you're a man of integrity. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? You see, they're really getting to the bottom of, Jesus, we want to know what you think, not what anybody else thinks. Because if we find out what you think, the chances are that we can discredit you. What do you think? Well, What's the question? Should we pay, or is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? You see, they've set up a choice. Yes or no. Pay the tax. Don't pay the tax. Which is it going to be? Come on, Jesus. Well, on the one hand, if he says, yes, pay the tax, then all those religious people who hate the Romans and all the people who are there in the crowds in Jerusalem are going to go, he's on side with the Romans. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax. Well, what's going to happen then? The Romans are going to say, well, he's a, he's a, a revolutionary. He's stopping us from, he, he, he's against us. He's anti us. You see, this tax was one of those bones of contention that divided people. Should you pay it or not? Well, notice how Jesus sees through them, though, doesn't he? Verse 18, you hypocrites. He knows their evil intent. And he says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? And then he says, show me a coin. Give me a coin. It looks something like this. Give me a coin. Uh, on it, it, the outside, on, on the one side on the left, uh, it says Tiberius Caesar, uh, son of the god Augustus. Son of God? Whew. And on the right-hand side, on the other side of it, it says Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. So basically, this is a coin that says he's a son of, that Caesar is son of God and the high priest. That's really offensive to a Jew. So offensive, actually, that the Jews had their own little coins that they could use, copper coins. So it's not surprising that Jesus didn't have one of these things because that would be a 
a sign of being an authentic Jew, but the Pharisees had one. That's why he calls them a hypocrite. But what's Jesus' answer? He says, well, who does that coin belong to? The answer is it belongs to Caesar. Why? Because it's got Caesar's image on it. Right? So if the coin belongs to Caesar because it's got Caesar's image on it, the next part of the question is interesting, isn't it? Give to Caesar whatever belongs to him. Give to Caesar whatever Caesar's image is on. Give to God whatever God's image is on. Well, what's God's image on? Well, this is again where you go back in your Bibles to the start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says that God created male and female in his image. Where's God's image? It's on us. There we go. So if Caesar's image is all about giving back taxes to Caesar, well, actually, the call of God's image is that God owns us. He owns everything of us. So in that sense, when it says give to Caesar what is Caesar's, it's like, well, there's some stuff that's there that you can give to your ruler to pay for the services they render. But on the other hand, well, you bear God's image. So give yourself to God. Give everything that you have to him. There isn't a clash. It isn't either or, it's both and. Jesus is saying, be a good citizen of earth and pay your taxes. But also, more importantly, be a good citizen of heaven and honor God with your life. It's worth pondering briefly, I think. Being a Christian actually means being a really good citizen. At the time, the Jewish people didn't want to be good citizens of Rome. So that would have been a revolutionary idea in Jesus' time. Being a good citizen means following God. But it seems that Jesus is encouraging people to be good citizens, to participate in civic life, but not to rule your life. So the question is, what might that look like for us today? Well, firstly, I think it's pretty clear, pay your tax. (laughs) Tax evasion, tax avoidance, all that kind of stuff. Well, I think Jesus says, be a good citizen, pay your tax. But there are other things as well. What about when your ruler is really bad? Have you ever thought that question? Okay, I understand this, but what about if your ruler is really, 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 really bad? And people throughout history have had to wrestle with that question. Sometimes, though, we use examples of terrible rulers to try and avoid being good citizens ourselves as a get-out clause. You know that first thing we thought, what's going on in your heart? What about if Hitler was our ruler? Would we have to obey him? Well, he's not. But I want to say that we have friends amongst us and family members amongst us who have experienced the real difficulty where actually following the government does mean actually a conscience clash with following God. They know full, how, full well that converting to Christ in some countries carries with it a threat of death. And some of our brothers amongst us have made that difficult choice. 
in those circumstances, give your life to God. (laughs) Give your life to God, but you can still pay your tax. Don't avoid giving your life to the government where instead, where the government isn't antagonistic towards God. There's a lot to flesh out in that. We haven't got time. But uh, I'll just leave that kind of sense of you uh, with you. Those things that belong to this world, you can give to those people of this world if they own it. But ultimately, you belong to God. So give your life to him. That's the first thing. That's probably the longest point. Secondly, though, God owns your death. So trust him with it. This is verses 23 to 33. Uh, Jesus has silenced the Pharisees, hasn't he? And then the Sadducees uh, turn up. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees who said there's no resurrection came to him with a question. The Sadducees, if you like, were the other half of the Pharisees. They were the other half of the establishment. They were the, uh, the kind of more religious, posh and privileged. They were the, the bishops of the day, if you like. Uh, you get the idea that the, the kind of the ones who are traditional in their understanding of the Bible. At the time, these guys would have only read the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, what they call the law. They didn't have the prophets. And uh, the other thing that we need to know about the Sadducees that it says here in this verse 23 is that they said there is no resurrection. Uh, the way to remember that, and this is a terrible pun, you've probably heard it all before, but they were sad you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. There we go. Easy way to remember it. Um, it's, it's one of those things that as a preacher, you kind of get told off if you don't say every time you talk about the Sadducees. So, uh, so there we go. Uh, I've said it. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. And they suspected that Jesus might believe in the resurrection. So they wanted to expose him as one of their opponents. But they wanted also to make him look stupid, didn't they? Have a look at that question in verses 24 to 28. Teacher, they said. Again, a bit like the Pharisees. uh, They didn't respect him, but they act as if they did. Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven um, brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all were married to her? You see, it's one of those really difficult questions, isn't it? Who is she married to? It's a tough one to answer. Surely. Um, They use the rules from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, if you're taking notes, which is about that idea of taking up um, uh, your your brother's wife to raise up offsprings for him. But that phrase, raise up offspring, it's there in verse 24. Raise up offspring was like the word for resurrection. So the reason why the Sadducees thought there was no resurrection was basically what they thought was that when you die, you rot. But that the most important thing for keeping your line going was that raising of offspring was your legacy. So you die, you rot, but that's all about legacy. 
Resurrection is what remains after you that was yours. That's why it was so important to have a family line. This is actually quite a common assumption these days, isn't it? People think, don't they, uh, what's most important about it, about me when I die, is actually what I leave behind. What's my legacy? What will people remember me for? What difference have I made? Yet actually what Jesus wants to say is, it's not about what you leave behind. It's actually about where you're going that's important. Because what does Jesus say? He says, well, actually, the problem of a physical resurrection is not a problem. Because he says, verse uh, 28, he says, no, sorry, verse 29, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And Jesus makes two points as a result of that. And I'll take them uh, in reverse. Verse 32, have a look at that. He says this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm the God of the living, or he is the God of living, not the dead. You see, what Jesus says is that, well, he quotes words that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He says, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all died years before, generations before, but God says, I am their God still. He was, he is, he always will be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because God is a God of relationship. This is how one writer puts it. He says this, to be associated with the living God is to be taken beyond the temporary life of earth into a relationship which lasts with God as long as God lasts. Those with whom the living identifies, uh, with whom the living God identifies himself cannot be truly dead. So therefore they must be alive with him after their earthly life is finished. You see, God is saying, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I am still their God because I am the God of the living, not the dead. So those who know him will live with him, that is God, for as long as God lives. Now that's quite remarkable, isn't it? You can see why that's super more important than leaving a legacy, but it doesn't answer our question. Now our question's really hard, isn't it? Because we've got these seven brothers, we've got one bride, in the resurrection, which we've just said happens, well, who's she going to be married to? Well, Jesus gives an insight into what that eternal life looks like. It's there in verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. There's a point here about how heavenly life is different to earthly life. We shouldn't just assume that resurrection is a continuation of what we have here because the issue and the main issue here is marriage. Now, this might be hard. 
this next sort of three or four minutes. It might be really hard for us um, because we're going to reflect on sort of marriage in eternity. And Jesus has just said that people won't be married in heaven. If you have an earthly spouse, then you won't be married to them in heaven. Now, that might be painful to hear. It, it might not be. <laughs> but the thing is, there is no death or birth in heaven. There's no need for marriage. There's no need for procreation in that sense. And so if you've enjoyed a good marriage here on earth, great but whether we're married or not actually I want to say this is really really good news because whilst there is no marriage in heaven it doesn't mean there is no love in heaven Paul says in 1 Corinthians that when faith and hope are no more because they've been realized love remains love is the currency of heaven not marriage it's not that an exclusive relationship that you have with one other person will be lost. Instead, it's that you enjoy that perfect, loving relationship with all. A good relationship with your spouse will be even better because it won't be tainted by sin or selfishness. There won't be any more petty arguments, no more doubts or niggling jealousy, no more frustrations with each other. Just perfect, open, selfless love for one another which welcomes everyone in. But it's even more profound than that, because there is a marriage in heaven. The marriage in heaven is actually the marriage between God and his people. The Bible teaches us that our earthly marriages are a picture. Have a look at this picture. It's a great barrier reef. Absolutely beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely stunning. You kind of think, oh, wish I was there. Wish it was all moving around. Well, here's the thing. The reality is better than the picture. If you were there and enjoying it, then it's better than sat here in Rotherham looking at a picture of it. The reality is better than the picture. And it's the same with marriage. The reality is eternity with Christ. The picture is marriage here on earth. And so if that thought of marriage being temporary here upsets us, I just want to say you won't be shortchanged in eternity because if you've enjoyed it here, you'll enjoy it all the more with Jesus. And we will all enjoy it together whether we are married or not, once, twice, three times, heaven is a place where we relate to God and one another in perfect, selfless, committed love, which goes on for as long as God continues to be God. Mind blown? Well, mine was. The nearest we can get to, in that, to our minds is that the picture, that's all we can see. The reality is infinitely better. Trust Jesus for your future. Thirdly, and again briefly now, God owns your heart, so love him with it. Verse 34 uh, to 40. 
hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. So they're saying, Jesus, we've got all these laws. They reckon there were 613. Which is the most important one? Pick one. You just got one. Pick it. The danger is that 612 feel left out. They think, well, that's not important because Jesus said that was most important. The Ten Commandments, which of those do you pick? Well, he picks one, doesn't he? Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, all your everything. And then Jesus goes on, doesn't he, in verse, uh, in the following verse to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. This gets to the heart of Christian living. What matters is our motivation beyond anything else. Actually, our motivation and the, uh, the actions of our hands will be demonstrated or demonstrations of the motivations of our hearts. The law of the Bible is summarized in loving others, but primarily loving God and everyone else. Now, we've already seen that a question can be both good or bad, dependent upon the motive uh, behind it. But Jesus says that all ethics, all ethics in the Bible come out of a motivation to love others. The question is, what about your heart? What is it you want most? Well, what your love is for will be reflected in what you want most. And your thought life, what do you think about most? What do you dream of? What do you scour the internet for? What do you spend money on? What do you fear losing? What do you crave? Whose approval do you crave? Those are the questions that determine in our own hearts. They're good questions to analyze our hearts to see, well, actually, what is it I love? Whom am I loving by acting in this way? Love of God, then love of others. One of the beautiful things about church is that as we love God, we love each other more effectively. We experience that love of others. So that's kind of really uh, the heart of the, the, the Bible's ethic. Love God, love your neighbor. Uh, the world would take that second half and run with it, wouldn't they? They'd say, yeah, treat others as you would have them treat yourself. Yes, absolutely. But what about when that entangles us, when it's difficult. People say we should love others, value others, affirm others, not discriminate against others, be tolerant of different ways of thinking, respect others, all of that. And we would say yes. But honestly, that worldview falls apart without that first bit about loving God. Because without moral guidance about how we should love others, we get entangled in all sorts of conflicting priorities. Because people affirm behavior that's potentially harmful the whole mess in the UK over gender is a prime example of this. We think it's loving to let people do what they want. Yet it may cause drastic consequences further down the line, huge upset to others. People get tied up in knots and the terrible things is that politicians avoid answering the questions. But Jesus doesn't. I don't think we should either for that matter. 
If you're interested in politics, uh, you might have come across the plight of uh, uh, this lady, Kate Forbes, who's the, um, the, the kind of main or lead candidate to be the, uh, the leader of the Scottish National Party. Notice what the, uh, this headline says. It says, Forbes doubles down and torpedoes SNP chances past the idiot pills. What did she do to make us such an idiot? Well, basically, she said what the Bible says about marriage, about identity, about gender. Does that kind of language sound familiar? Well, that's exactly what Jesus faced, isn't it? Being told to discredit or discredit. And, and the point being, what this guy thinks that she should have done is keep quiet about what the Bible says to promote her own chances of being a political leader. The reality is that she would rather love God first and express that by loving her neighbor by saying what the Bible says. I think that's just a call for us all, isn't it? Love God first, love our neighbor as ourselves, which isn't just to affirm what people want to do, but is to make that point of telling people what they need to hear. Jesus says what is good to live well in this life, to be a good citizen, to be a good neighbor relies on loving God. And Christians have been at the forefront of loving others practically. Food banks, places of refuge, supporting charities for the marginalized, as that expression of love for God. And so let's love God first, love our neighbor by sharing the good news of Jesus himself, that eternal future relating to him. But finally, and we've made it, Jesus turns the tables on his questioners in verses 41 to 46. So if somebody could text Rich Proctor now, then, uh, then he can make his way down. Jesus asks them a question, doesn't he? And it's a question that's right at the heart of their faith. The coming Messiah was their central hope. And Jesus says, tell me about the Messiah. Who is he? Whose son is he? And they think, brilliant, we know this one. And they say, the son of David. And they think, brilliant, we can... And Jesus then says, well, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Because he says in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under my feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Psalm 110 is the psalm that's quoted most about Jesus in the New Testament. But the assumption that is this. Somebody could not be greater than the father. The one who comes first is always the greatest. But if the Messiah, and David is writing about the Messiah, comes after, Jesus, uh, comes after David, then, well, we've got a bit of a problem. Because David says in Psalm 110, he's writing, the Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, David's Lord, He's saying the Messiah is his law, Lord. The Messiah must have been around before David, on a heavenly throne, 
to be David's Lord, to be greater than David. You see, the problem was they'd reduced their vision of the Messiah to someone who was just in David's family tree. A descendant who would come and be their local king once more. They wanted just a man. But Jesus once more blows open their small-minded ideas and gives them something amazing. Someone amazing. He says the scriptures point to someone greater than the greatest king they have ever known in all their history. An eternal king who lives and reigns with God forever. David knew this hundreds of years before, but he was speaking of Jesus. You see, Jesus is God's eternal king. Jesus Christ is God. And from that moment, nobody dared ask Jesus any more questions. He utterly defeated him with, their knowledge of this, uh, with his knowledge of the scriptures, with the wisdom of his words, with the challenge of their hypocrisy, but also with the instructions for life well lived now and a hope for the future. We've seen God, not Caesar, owns your life, so give it to him. God owns your death, so trust him with it. God owns your heart, so love him with it and love others. Jesus Christ is God, full stop. So I'm going to leave you thinking about that question you would have asked right at the beginning of Jesus. I want to suggest two questions. One which is good, and one which is pretty much the same words, but not so good. We'll start with that. Who are you, Jesus, to tell me how to live? Or is it, who are you, Jesus? Tell me how to live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you very much that you alone are God. We thank you that uh, you uh, know our hearts uh, and you um, provided a way even for those with impure hearts like ourselves to know you forever. Uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to be those who give our devotion to you, our worship to you and your, your Father. Uh, we pray that you would help us to trust you with our death. That we would know living with you in that marriage relationship forever. And that we would also love you with all our hearts and be able to love others as ourselves. And please, would the message that you will never shortchange us, go uh, beyond us and go to new uh, and our friends and our families and those who don't yet know that truth, please would they have open hearts to receive it for your glory and our joy. Amen.